Many moons ago, when the world was young and heroes walked the earth, there was born the History Podcast. And in this world, there was the Beeb. There was Lars Brownworth and a bloke called Mike Duncan, and we heard Mike and knew he was good. And so was spawned a new generation, wherein I was inspired by Robin Pearson, who picked up the mantle of the Roman Empire in Byzantium. Robin, I'm glad to say, is still going strong, is still producing magnificent history and entertainment, and here is a message from him. Hello everyone, this is Robin Pearson from the History of Byzantium podcast. It seems like you enjoy your history recounted to you by an erudite, funny Englishman. Well, I am also an Englishman. And if you like a bit of Roman history, then come join me for a thousand-year epic of incredible highs and devastating lows. Check out The History of Byzantium wherever you get your podcasts, or go to thehistoryofbyzantium.com. For now, back to David. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. everyone and welcome to the History of England, episode 382, The War of Words. Last time on the gum-bleeding strand, we heard one of those big moments in English history, thoroughly dramatic, and one of the very best bits in the film Cromwell. Alec Guinness there was at his most Alec Guinnessy. Although, you know, Cromwell was not, as he was in the film, one of the five members. He was just a bloke. Now look, with hindsight, that looks it. Of course, it must now be war. But sadly, people at the time were nowhere near as clever as we are now. A nation of Mr and Mrs Thickies, basically. And Charles's flight from London was accompanied instead by the sound of jaws hitting toe caps. Bolstrode Whitelock, in particular, was astounded at the King's flight. He confided to his diary that it was another and great wonder to many prudent men that the King should leave this city the place of his and his predecessor's usual residence, where most of his friends and servants were about him, the magazine of all provisions, both for war and peace. This ought not to have been done advisedly. Today, then, you and I are going to talk about the options facing Charles now and about how he begins to recover from this disaster of a failed coup, how he and his chumps build a story, a message and banner around which royalists could gather. The message of this and the next episode is this, basically, that Charles had shown himself too incompetent to create unity in his kingdom and rule accordingly. But sadly and tragically, he was now to prove that he was not sufficiently incompetent because he proved rather good at building a party around him. 
So a big story of the Civil War is that Charles was neither competent enough nor incompetent enough to avoid civil war. If he had been too incompetent to create a party, he might simply have been sidelined. Charles had fled so abruptly that when they arrived at Hampton Court, none of the beds were made up or ready for them, and the whole family were forced to sleep in the same room, which is rather nice, actually. It happened once to the Crowther family when we rented an old castle for a self-catering holiday home. The little kiddies were all scared of ghosts and absolutely terrified, and we all ended up sleeping in the same bed. It was rather cute. But for the Stuarts in 1642, I don't suppose it was much of a holiday atmosphere. Within a couple of days, Charles had again moved to Windsor, where he expected to establish his court again. And so he did indeed summon his great men to attend him there. The response was not encouraging. The very leaders of his household, Essex, his Lord Chamberlain, and Holland, his groom of the stool, Point Bank refused. One MP who did go on the 28th of January to Windsor wrote that he found a desolate cause. Not one nobleman and scarce three gentlemen. It all sounds very lonely and a little bit desperate. However, 14 peers at last did then come. Whether that was a good thing for Charles or not is a little bit moot because their departure from the House of Lords changed its composition forever to something much more radical. Now, back in London, everything was very different. The very day after Charles and Henrietta Maria had fled, news spread like a rash and covered the entire city in little red spots. The five members triumphantly returned to Westminster and the Houses of Parliament, and they did not go quietly, let me tell you. There were no lights being hidden under any bushels here. They took the Thames in a flotilla of decorated barges, little podgy Pym feeling like a hero, Hampton, Hollers, Hazelrig and Strode, no doubt all lapping it up as the five members returned. While they went by boat, Philip Skippen marched eight companies of his trained bands down the Strand towards Westminster, 2,400 of them, drums beating, pikes trailing, muskets shouldered, crowds cheering around them. The trained bands all had pieces of paper attached to their pikes and muskets, fluttering in the breeze as they stopped to fire a volley in celebration. Between many houses, Londoners had pinned the same pieces of paper on poles, these were copies of the protestation oath, one oath to bind them all and in the darkness find them. And indeed the mariners had all got together as well, in the ports and inns of the East End, and produced their very own version of the protestation, referring lovingly to the words of the great Thomas Cranmer, Woe be to England when there is no Parliament! The protestation had become a symbol of allegiance to Parliament and its cause, over the next few weeks, petitions continued and all had a remarkable consistency in their demands. And a good example of their demands is a slightly different process at the end of January called the Anne Stagg petition because it was led and pursued by Ibrewster, Anne Stagg, and was a petition made consciously and specifically by women. It was presented at the end of January and then on the 31st of January Parliament was pursued by Anne and 400 female petitioners for a proper response. 
It repeated the familiar themes of the time. It majored on demands for help for the beleaguered and desperate Irish Protestants and the removal of bishops from the House of Lords. It's part of a series of petitions presented by women in the Civil War period, along with the Peace Petition of 1643 and Elizabeth Lilburn and the Levellers in 1646. They share some themes. They're not outwardly socially radical. Anne Staggs petition very carefully and very consciously, like Ch Catherine Chidley's work, plays by the rules of the established patriarchal mores. The women's petition therefore followed the accepted right of women to petition on behalf of their husbands and families. Husbands and children as dear to us as the lives and blood of our hearts, they wrote. But it is unusual because they petitioned specifically as women and referenced their experience as women and defended their right to do so very clearly and very outwardly. We do this not out of any conceit or self-pride, seeking to equal ourselves with men, either in authority or wisdom, but according to our places, to discharge that duty we owe to God and the cause of the church as far as layeth in us. The petitioners were therefore no social radicals. At very least, they played the game by the rules. But they claimed the authority of their own experience as women as important and distinctive, and they made the point that they suffered just as men did. There's another petition from the women of Southwark at this time that does the same thing. It was submitted by an MP who wrote that they brought the petition from the women of Southwark, whom he dare not displease because their sex suffers there. And finally... Anne Stagg's petition makes the same point as did Catherine Chidley again, that in the matters of theology and matters of conscience, women were every bit men's equals in right, liberty and authority. It seems to me a constant theme through the revolutions that although socially very conservative, radical Protestants nonetheless introduce, almost despite themselves, quite radical social ideas. So you might ask then, gentle listeners, where we are with the English Revolution, and generally, what are we going to think about over the next couple of episodes? Well, the question in early 1642 are these. Did there remain any chance that conflict could be resolved without violence? It is worth noting that in January 1642, and indeed for many months afterwards, the vast, vast majority of the people thought not only that it could, but also that it should and secondly, in the event of the solution being found at the end of a musket, who was going to win and what were they going to use to win it? As an introduction to that second question, where, when I was but a tiny little boy with a hey-ho, the wind and the rain, there was a story about the start of the Civil War. At the beginning, Parliament was at a terrible disadvantage because the King had all the posh, rich and well-armed lords on his side and plucky little Parliament was jolly lucky, and did I mention plucky, to survive. But because their cause was just, etc, etc, etc. Well, I exaggerate for effect, but that's the general tone. In fact, the image of Charles and his deserted court at Windsor is a better indicator of the real situation and indeed of how people viewed it at the time. Charles had a mountain to climb. If it was indeed to be war, he was nowhere. He had left all the engines of government behind him in London. Parliament already controlled an army of 8,000 in the combined London trained bands under Skippen. They controlled the biggest armoury in the country, the Tower of London. 
To some, the use of force in some shape or form seemed almost inevitable now. By leaving London, Charles had not only left behind an arsenal and an army, he'd also made the separation of the two sides physical. There was no escaping now the idea of two camps. Not only that, but the opportunity for face-to-face discussion was completely gone. If compromise was to be discussed at all, it would now be in a formal atmosphere of negotiation, not a series of discussions and informal understandings. So, we have ahead of us a task. How did Charles manage to survive the first year at all? And at least part of the answer was to lie in a war of words. Over the next six months or so, both sides would take to a propaganda war to explain what were they about, to bring the people of England over to their side, a war of words. And Charles was to prove very, very good at it. He didn't start with an awful lot going for him in terms of advice about how he should proceed and the messages that he should deliver. There was no mint as waffer thin as the team advising Charles in January, but he was not alone, and you might say there were two pressures on him, those of the Valkyrie or those of Freya. It's a slightly rubbish way of putting it, I have to say. Victory by all-out war or victory through the path of accommodation is basically what I mean by those two daft images. But Henrietta Maria is now Valkyrie in this and it is almost certain that her advice and plan was the one that Charles would end up following. Now, Henrietta Maria had far fewer scruples than her husband did in now following a violent and aggressive strategy with the aim to crush these upstarts who had dared challenge the power of the king and threaten and insult her personally and her faith and her family. She felt Charles had been way too flexible. She demanded that he create advice that Horatio Nelson would later follow and go straight at him. If they saw you in action, perhaps they would speak after another fashion. It must be war. Henrietta Maria would head for the continent with all the crown jewels. With those, and with all the loans that she could raise, she would buy armaments and send them back to the king. Meanwhile, they would look for friends. Henrietta Maria with the Dutch and the French, Charles with the Scots and the Irish. Once Henrietta Maria was safely away, Charles would take himself to a different part of the country where he could find more support, to the north, and critically to Hull, where was stored the biggest arsenal outside London. Then we'd see what we were dealing with, men or mice. While Lady Macbeth whispered in one ear, the goddess of caution and moderation whispered in t'other. A group of moderate advisers led by Edward Hyde urged the king to return to the path of party, continue the work to convince the world that it was the king, not parliament, that was the force of order that stood for the ancient constitution, social stability, order and tradition that Pym and his cronies were no more than common rebels hungry for personal power. Let it become obvious that Charles wanted nothing but peace and that it was Parliament that would be satisfied with nothing other than war. In the end, it is Charles who made the decisions, and maybe Henrietta Maria's advice would drive his strategy to reduce his opponents to submission by force, but the likes of Hyde would drive the message and the propaganda that he put forward that the king was the best chance for the country of peace and stability. To make this stick, 
Although the king and queen were furiously preparing for war, it must look as though they were searching for peace. It was critical that it should not be he, Charles, that started the war. It should be Parliament. However, no sooner had he brushed the dust of London from his hose than his first thoughts had turned to the sinews of war that he would need if he did need to fight. And since the Tower of London was off-limits, his thoughts flew to the Athens of the north, to Hull. And there he turned to the enormously rich and equally enormously cultured Marcus of Newcastle, William Cavendish, who was also something of a philosopher, by the way, and indeed poet, I think. Newcastle will play an important military role in the forthcoming argy-bargy, and he was royalist through and through. It's quite interesting. Like many nobles, he saw in the concept of monarchy foundation and support of his own greatness. Bring the monarch down and the nobility would be just like everyone else, is the point. Now this is a string that Charles will pluck for all he is worth on the harp of politics. Newcastle had already delivered great service to Charles, giving him £10,000 to help him fight the bishops' wars and raising a troop of 120 soldiers for him. Anywho, Charles ordered Newcastle now to seize the fortress at Hull, which is evidence that, whatever follows, Charles was already thinking of conflict. When Newcastle's man got there, though, they found John Hotton, appointed by Parliament as Governor of Hull. Poor Newcastle was forced to report back to his king that the town will by no means admit of me, so I am very flat and out of countenance. Poor lamb. I think you can take this as evidence that Parliament were also thinking of violence by this point. And indeed, this is one of the occasions when Cromwell puts his head above the parapet of history. He appears as one of the fiery spirits, the people talked about by diarist Timmons' Jews. On the 14th of January, Cromwell moved a proposal that the House consider how to put itself in a posture of defence. It started the process that would lead to the Militia Bill, which took control of the militia away from its traditional commander, the King. Most of what Charles does now is for the express purpose of getting Henrietta Maria away to the continent safe and sound. He realised that if Pym rumbled that Charles had now committed himself to war, Pym would do everything he could to prevent her from escaping and enlisting support abroad. So, Charles pretended to play the card of peace. He sent a request to Parliament to lay out their proposals for the way forward, holding out a prospect of peace. Parliament simply presented their demand that all the King's ministers be removed and replaced by Parliament. As Charles and Henrietta Maria travelled down to the south coast, Charles agreed to drop the charges against the five members, and then he gave his assent to the bill excluding bishops from the House of Lords. By this time, they'd arrived at Dover. Phew! But who'd have thunk it? Adverse winds. Henrietta Maria could not leave for the continent. How frustrating bloody weather. And then the ultimate insult to royal power arrived for his assent, a militia bill for all command to be placed under Parliament. Now, there can be little doubt Charles absolutely hated this, and Henrietta Maria was firm. Control of the military was critical to a monarch's power and to his plan to free himself from rebellion. For the moment, he prevaricated and delayed with Parliament. On the 23rd of February, the winds changed, the fair breeze blew, the Queen embarked and the furrow followed free. 
there was an emotional scene. Charles promised he'd never make peace without her approval, kissed his wife and daughter, and they set sail. They would be welcomed by the Dutch startholder and installed in a palace in The Hague, roll up their puffed sleeves and get to work for the cause. The opinion around Europe now was that Charles must fight. From Brussels, a Franciscan friar wrote, As to Charles, the general opinion is he will never again be king unless he draws his sword for it. Henrietta Maria set around pawning the crown jewels immediately. Back home, Charles galloped along the cliffs of Dover to keep the ship in sight until they finally disappeared over the horizon. Then he, disconsolately and sadly, shoulders drooping, turned his horse and went to work. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready get 30, ready get 20, 20, 20, ready get 20, 20, ready get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. With Henrietta Maria free and clear, he had no need any more to be conciliatory with Parliament. All he needed to do now was to be seen to be working for peace, but also laying out his case. Peace and stability would come from rendering unto Caesar that which was Caesar's. So, as a parliamentary delegation arrived, Charles remarked sotto voce to Hyde that he was now without any fear to please them. Parliamentary peers hoped for a sort of compromise, where they and other nobles could rule on Charles's behalf until he came to his senses. This idea was swiftly dispatched to the coldest regions of the netherworld, when Charles now summarily rejected the militia bill and refused to give his assent. You have asked that of me that was never asked of a king, and with which I would not trust my wife and children. So that's a no then, though fair dues. Not sure I'd trust my kids with the command of tens of thousands of armed men either. Pretty sure they'd take control of the TV remote control pretty quickly. Now, Charles was on pretty strong ground here. Control of the militia was unarguably the traditional role of the king. But darn the constitutional niceties, this is an emergency. So in response, the Commons declared the militia bill to be an ordinance an executive decision without the king's consent, but one which would have the strength of law, a statute. Ordinances had been justified before when the king was in Scotland, on the grounds that the king would approve it later when he got back. But the king wasn't absent from the country now. This was pretty much saying the king was no longer capable, no longer fit to rule, like in Edward II or Henry VI. Remember ages ago when, with Edward II when the idea was created that there were two kings, the office, the conceptual one, to which one must always be loyal, and the biological bit, who might turn out to be a badden, and if so, one could put in a box for a while. Well, this is that idea brought back to life. It was effectively a declaration of independence and parliamentary sovereignty. Maybe this was, in fact, a declaration of war. Discuss. And it was a difficult message to put across to the people. It was a complicated message, it has to be said. While the king's message 
Render unto Caesar that which was Caesar's was simple, direct, effective and appealed to tradition. Charles now travelled with his son, the Prince of Wales, to find a new home. His journeys took them first to Cambridge, where the university proclaimed and celebrated him, yay, and the townspeople threw petitions at him. And then it was up the cold, rocky, icy roads to York by the 19th of March when he rolled in. From there he would build his party, convince the country that his cause was just and Parliament nothing but a two-bit rebels out to destroy the perfect constitution and talk peace until he was ready to make war. He had with him the grand court of 39 gentlemen and 17 guards. A bit of a come down, he had a mountain to climb. But ladies and gentlemen, he was lacing up his climbing boots. Those boots would take him first to the mighty city of Kingston-on-Hull, where lived the Arsenal of the North and its governor, John Hotham. Henrietta Maria pleaded with Charles to take this town by force. But Hyde wanted Parliament to make the first move of rebels and advised against taking the town by force unless Parliament begins. So, Charles started a campaign. He sent a petition to Parliament asking why they'd occupied Hull in contravention of the Petition of Right. It's a nice little flourish. His petition points out that Parliament is in breach of England's ancient constitution and he has got a point. However, Parliament might point out that his view of the ancient constitution differed wildly from theirs. And so in response, Parliament ordered Hotham, as Governor of Hull, to send the arsenal to London. For Charles, this counted as the required declaration of war. So he packed his bags and gathered around him several key items, including 300 bandsmen he could now command and his dignity, and on the 22nd of April he set out for Hull. But he sent ahead Charles Louis, the Elector of the Palatine, who was still with him, and his lad Prince Charles, to warn Hotham that he was on his way and he expected to be admitted. Hotham, in response, shut the gates and locked them. The next day, the 23rd of April, St George's Day, Charles turned up in front of the gates to find them closed against him. There then followed a rather delightful shouting match on the walls. Charles in front of the gates on the ground, Hotham on the walls, where Charles huffed and puffed to be let in, and Hotham replied, not by the hair of Parliament's chinny-chin-chin. Charles huffed off and then returned later with just 20 horsemen looking peaceful and said... What about just us lot then? Hotham said no, and I believe hamsters and elderberries may have been mentioned as well. Charles tried to persuade the men on the walls around Hotham to defy their commander and admit their proper king. They just looked dazed and confused, so Charles exploded with fury and humiliation and declared the lot of them traitors and stormed off. The following day, he wrote to Parliament demanding they disown Hotham's action, which Parliament duly refused and Charles stalked off back to York. In May, the arsenal was duly shipped from Hull down to London. Now this story is often used to demonstrate Charles's abject defeat, and indeed to award him points for general silliness in an event that smacks of a Monty Python sketch too famous to mention. But there is an alternative view. Why did Charles warn Hotham that he was on his way? 
It could well be that Charles knew full well he would be refused entry. But what he was after was a public declaration and act that Parliament were in rebellion now against their king and his just regal rights. And in Parliament's written reply, he could now claim that he had just that in his hands. The affair at Hull could well be just one more stage in the war of words, part of a concerted campaign by Charles to present himself as the defender of the constitution and the right order of things against rebels who were now seeking to tear England apart. So, this was indeed just one part of the war of words to win the heart and soul of the nation. The paper flew. There is proclamation and counter-proclamation. And there's actually a lovely quote from the Venetian ambassador watching all this, who pitted, These unhappy people, attacked by frequent appearances of these numerous documents, so mutually contradictory. May I uh, reassure you all that we're not going to talk about all of them, but we are going to talk about one particular exchange, which in effect was the production of the manifestos by Parliament and King. These are the issues over which the civil wars will be fought. It's June 1642 then, and the Junto really need to rally the people behind their programme, their view of a more equitable world. They called it, catchily and almost criminally sexily, the 19 propositions. Don't you tell me Pym doesn't know how to sell the sausages sizzle. The document was the by now normal mix of the secular and the religious. Religion was to be thoroughly reformed by an assembly of divines. It then presented a picture of a king illegally destroying the basis of the glorious and ancient constitution, who needed therefore to be restrained. To do that, the executive was now to be subject to control of the people through parliament. Ministers of the crown, the privy council, the judiciary and leading members of the king's household were not only to be appointed by the king, they were only to be appointed after parliamentary consent and a discussion, but also they were to be monitored constantly and removed if they messed up in the parliamentary view. Fancy, what a thought. Oh, and they couldn't be just removed by the king's pleasure. Parliament must be involved. The royal and official answer to the 19 propositions, published by Charles, bore all the signs of the genius of Edward Hyde, amongst others. He made exactly the same appeal. Our ancient constitution is in danger from a parliament that was now going way beyond re-establishing the status quo to radically transforming the constitution into something else. And look, cried Charles, look at all the concessions I have made for no reason but to fight for peace and from the good of my heart. And on the way, Parliament are threatening social revolution and turmoil to destroy the beautiful Church of England and Cranmer's Book of Common Prayer, the perfect religion established by good Queen Bess, capital G, capital Q and capital E. In so doing, they cleverly tapped into the cultural antipathy to the demands of the Puritans and local communities. So, the Civil War then was fought by both sides to preserve the ancient constitution of the land. Are we clear about the causes of the Civil War now? All sorted? No? How strange. The answer to the conundrum, of course, lies in a couple of things. One was the view of what the Constitution was. For both parties, it was the perfect combination of monarchy, aristocracy and people. 
represented by three parties, kings, lords and commons. But the relative roles and powers of these parties, this was what was at dispute. For Hyde and Charles, the king ruled by divine right and the commons was never intended for any share in government or the choosing of them that would govern. For the parliamentarians, the king ruled with the people's consent and their involvement was critical. The people must have a share, say in their own governance. And they saw Charles's imposition of the new Arminian doctrine as an attack on the said Church of Queen Bess and assertion of an overbearing royal prerogative based on a doctrine of divine right, which demonstrated the need for people to have a say in their own governance. The commons were the conservators at liberty. Essentially, as one historian has put it, they were making up constitutional monarchy as they went on the hoof. Such an exalted view of the commons, according to the royalist point of view, was a short road to social chaos and the burning of all that was good, light and clean in the world. It was the monarchy that stood between the destruction of the church and social chaos. Without the monarchy then, thundered the answers, the common people would set themselves up for themselves, call parity and independence liberty. They would destroy all rights and properties, all distinctions of families and merit. It is indeed a horrible thought, I have to say. But actually, look, I speak slightly sarcastically and from a 21st century point of view, of course. So it is worth just remembering that many at the time would agree with the statement that this was the way the world was rightly ordered. The English Revolution will release some startling radical thoughts, but most of England wasn't ready for that yet. There are a few figures of medieval England who have become heroes of radicalism and early champions of social justice. Watt Tyler, John Ball, Robert Kett, Jack Cade, just for example. It is precisely these kind of people that Hyde rolls out as a vision of the hell threatened by Parliament. This splendid and excellently distinguished form of government would end in a dark, equal chaos of confusion and the long line of our many noble ancestors in a Jack Cade or a Watt Tyler. It was a very, very effective cry, and many hearts leapt to hear a champion against such a prospect of a world turned upside down. The message of royalism was presenting Charles as the champion of social order, a bulwark against chaos. And look around, and you could see the evidence of chaos, all those petitions and marches, the iconoclasm and the mass protests. And it wasn't just in London. I mean, London was clearly at the front of this. And it is interesting, actually, just for a moment, to speculate how things might have turned out if Charles had called the 1941 Parliament to Oxford instead. But one royalist news sheets, Mercurius Civicus, would write, In all England there is but one rebel, and that is London. And certainly there was turmoil in London. Edward Pitts wrote, Moderate men are suspected, violent men are thought saint. Fears and jealousies daily increase, his majesty's servants suffer most. But it wasn't true that London alone was affected. All over the country, the middling sort, with greater wealth, higher rates of literacy, greater political awareness, were demanding a voice. The Londoner Nehemiah Wallington watched as cascades of petitions 
came into London through Aldgate from all around the country. He wrote of many hundreds of them on horseback with their protestations sticking in their hats and girdles. There's that protestation oath again. The turmoil was everywhere. Pamphlets were breeding like mice. We now have over 4,000 from 1642 distributed around the country. That's over double the previous year. The sense of things out of control seemed to legitimise protest, as we've seen from iconoclasm. But also, there were enclosure riots in Yorkshire, there were a rash of protests in the Fens and in the West Country. And some MPs were even beginning to talk about very radical ideas. Let me bring you back to Henry Martin, MP, who had launched the idea of the protestation. And we'll really get into trouble for where his head is going, which will effectively mean the king's head ends up where it does. In 1642, he's not quite there yet. But in July 1642, he caused a bit of a ruckus by saying, Though the king be king of the people of England, he is not the master of the people of England. Henry Martin would be one of the first people to start asking whether or not we really need to have all this kinging going on to be happy and successful. In response to all these ideas and protests, there was a deep and widespread desire for all of this to stop, for King and Parliament to get together and sort it out. After all, they keep talking about the same thing, King, Lords and Commons. To work out a peace and return to order. Among royalists and among parliamentarians now was emerging in each a peace party. In response to Charles's answers to the 19 propositions, Parliament, quite by accident, found for themselves a writer who clearly saw and could articulate the fundamental basis of this dispute. Henry Parker, for it is he, is not a well-known name. But in the 1640s, he became the most influential political thinker, working with committees and parliamentary leaders and thinkers, often behind the scenes, but, as one MP wrote, with a hand in many seditious pamphlets. So influential was he that he acquired a nickname. He became known not as the Black Vegetable, but as the Observator. Probably because his most famous work was entitled observations upon His Majesty's late answers and expresses. I'm not sure I'd choose the Observator as a nickname by choice, but their nicknames, like families, are normally not a matter of choice, as I can confirm from my personal experience, having once acquired the school nickname of Bogbrush. So unfair. Henry Parker should be better known. He was from a Sussex family, about 38 years old at this time, and a lawyer. I bring you back to an earlier episode of the lawyers versus clergy thing. So often, the cause of popular sovereignty and law came from legal minds. According to Parker, ultimate authority had nothing to do with some absolutist theory of divine right, nothing to do with an individual claiming an exclusive authority from God. Nope. Power is originally inherent in the people, declared Parker. Nor is the argument about who is really defending the ancient constitution any more the most important thing. What really matters, he wrote, the paramount law that shall give law to all human laws whatsoever is salus populi. Salus populi, the health of the people, voicing a thought to be picked up decades later by the great philosopher and political scientist John Locke. 
Salus Populi, Suprema Lex. The health of the people is the supreme law. Unrestrained, royal power could become tyranny. But representatives of the people, the lords and the commons, could not conceivably ordain anything that was not advantageous to the people. OK, we might argue the point given the dodgy nature of the franchise at this point in time, but it is the articulation of the guiding principle of the British Constitution, the sovereignty of Parliament, salus populi, suprema lex. In this situation then, argued Parker, where the King had proved his untrustworthiness by deserting Parliament and withdrawing to York, it is Parliament that must take control for the sake of the safety of the people. It is Parliament that must be obeyed because it represented the whole community in its underived majesty. Parliament had found in Henry Parker its philosopher. So, the war of words, the petitions, pamphlets, ideas, theology and legal debate was out in the open. Charles had effectively built a powerful case as a defender of the ancient constitution in which the commons had a role, but short of the chaos and disorder of a ket or a cade, which stood for social stability, structure, hierarchy, the tradition of the Church of England and bishops. Against it stood a party that warned that the constitution was not safe in this king's hands and that a new view was needed to preserve it, of a constitution which defined itself by the ultimate authority of the people in all it did, the legislative or executive. A choice now lay ahead for the people of England, whether to choose the king, stability and tradition, against an innovative parliament, or the sovereignty of parliament against an innovatory, untrustworthy and increasingly tyrannical king. Due to the work of Hyde and Pym on either side, they at least had a better idea of what they were choosing now. Or in the words of Rush, they could choose not to make a choice. Next time, we will look at how the war of words turns into a war of action as people are forced to make those choices. Until then, thank you all very much for listening and taking part. For your comments on the website, Facebook and podcatchers and things, good luck and have a great week. I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 